We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. As summer races past us with an almost blinding speed, the topic on everyone's mind as we head for the fall is how to reopen schools, or should we reopen schools? Here in New York City, the head of the teachers' union lays it out this way. The opening of the schools is the greatest challenge you will have in this COVID crisis. Just think of the issues. Protecting the health of students, protecting staff and teachers, especially those who might be most vulnerable or live with compromised family members. Having a plan in place if there's an outbreak. And then there's the issue of remote learning. Kids are relatively adaptable. It's amazing uh, how adaptable they can be. Uh, Faculty will be the ones that have the hardest time adapting to new ways of teaching like this. Uh, But I'm not worried particularly about students. I think our experience has always been, you know, they will rise to the challenge. This week on 880 In-Depth, a discussion about the opening of schools this fall and finding the right way to teach our kids. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880. And the story of the fall school year is fast moving and fast approaching. In the minutes ahead, we'll hear from a prominent New Jersey pediatrician who advises two big school districts in Bergen County about what he's telling school administrators and parents. But first, New York City announced a general plan to reopen schools in a blend of remote and in-person learning and promises more specifics in two weeks. But Michael Mulgrew, the head of the United Federation of Teachers, told our Peter Haskell this week. It's such a difficult position that that we are all in because of this virus, but it has been made, it has been exacerbated by some of the lack of urgency on behalf of the city. And that's what bothers me more than anything else. Michael Mulgrew sat down with our Peter Haskell. What is your take on the city's plan? Well, the plan lacked so much uh, in terms of specific details. Uh, my first uh, problem or issue with the plan is we don't have a dedicated uh, testing and contact tracing uh, apparatus for the city school system, which is kind of uh, like flabbergasting to me because it's, from February on, and all we've heard about is in order to get keep this virus get it under control and keep it under control, you have to have a very aggressive testing and tracing program. Um, where if we open our school system, you're talking about well over, you know, 1 million people. Uh, it's actually almost close to 1.5 million people are part of the school system. 
we have to start, we have to have a testing regimen in place. And parents and teachers, we're all partners, we're in this together. Um, we all have to make sure that we're, you know, volunteering, that we have uh, testing being done on a weekly basis in each school community. That's what the medical professionals have told us we need. And then the tracing piece, because if you do have a positive test, uh, you need to get everyone uh, who has meet the, meets the criteria of coming into uh, contact, they have to get into quarantine quickly. And that's how you stop this virus from spreading. And that's actually how you keep it from growing. Uh, yet the city doesn't even have that in a basic plan that they submitted to Albany. So that was my first problem with it, as well as many others. So does the city even have the capability to come up with the kind of testing and tracing that you want to see? I believe they could have that capability, but this is one of the reasons why we are so frustrated because we wanted to start, we started planning to how to, you know, what would be the models where we could open our schools safely. The UFT started doing that planning in April and uh, the, the city hall didn't get involved until July. And we asked them in April to be getting involved and they kept saying, you have plenty of time. We don't have plenty of time. We were short on time in April to do this because it's so complicated and challenging. Uh, a regular school year we saw planning in April, not a school year where we would attempt to open inside of a pandemic. So um, if we would have started then, we probably could have been in a much better place. Uh, but again, this is about safety first. So those are the, that's the two basics. Every, all the arguments that you see in the medical world, they're all saying you need the testing and tracing. Masks, PPE, testing, tracing. So uh, we don't even have the testing and tracing, but I'm, I, you know, I've spoken to the city hall and i said look this is this, we have to have these things in place so hopefully when they have an extension now 14 days they will take this more seriously about getting those pieces those basic pieces in place right now what was the city doing between april and july um not working with the schools not working with us um at that point, they were, you know, April and July, I guess it was more about, you know, the mayor was going on TV every day. So, uh, uh, and it was about, you know, talking about the pandemic. Uh, we had the mayor and the governor both every day telling us the numbers on the pandemic. Uh, but there was nothing, they, they should have directed the Department of Education to work with us. Remember, we have mayoral control, so the Department of Education is not free to do what they would think was best. They have to get permission from City Hall to do that. Uh, so they should have had city, uh, the Department of Ed working with us at that point in time, but they did not. So, you know, that's water under the bridge at this point, but that water under the bridge is now leaving us, put us in this really difficult position that we're in now. Have you been in contact with the mayor about all of this? I spoke to the mayor for the first time since March uh, a couple of days ago. Was that productive? Well, I was clear about, you know, some of the basic things we need, and we agreed that we would uh, get together and try to have a conversation about it. So, but it, remember, it's August already. Uh, this, these were conversations I should have been having in May and in June, not in August. What happens now, be it your conversations with the mayor, with the, with the chancellor, with top officials at DOE, we are running out of time. What needs to happen to get the ball rolling? And, and is testing and tracing in a district this size going to do it for you? 
Well, it's it's just it's not just the testing and tracing. That was something I just thought we would automatically have. Um, I mean, you we understand that, that when they're talking to medical professionals, doctors, and so are we. Ours are independent from us. They, you know, thankfully we have wonderful hospital chains here in New York uh, who have really lent us their their top people to have discussions with. Uh, especially Northwell, I can't thank them enough. But um, their concern is that the opening of the schools is the greatest challenge you will have in this COVID crisis. Uh, so th- they understand the need to open the school, as we do, but they also have been very clear about emphasizing to us, your, the schools, when they become open, can absolutely become the trigger that starts to recontaminate a neighborhood and then move it out into a, a larger community. So they've been very uh, careful in terms of stressing to us that you have to have these, the PPE, the hand washing, the ventilation, uh, the social distancing, all of that has to be in place and it has to be real. It can't just be on a piece of paper. Uh, and that is our other concern right now. A lot of things in the plan, such as the social distancing, the PPE, the blended learning, um, all of those things were things that we had hoped would be in the plan and we had discussed with the Department of Ed and the city. Uh, so the next concern for us is, is it real? Uh, can we make sure that it's real? Because in March, uh, before we closed down the school system, there were certain safety procedures that were put into place, but they were only on paper. They weren't real in the schools. So it's testing and tracing and then making sure that the schools are doing everything that the medical professionals are telling us has to be done. Um, not just for the safety of the students and the teachers in the school, but for the safety of the larger community. Because you have to, as they kept saying to us, you, you need to understand, if you don't have that contact tracing, you're quarantining immediately. If you don't have uh, access to randomized testing on a weekly basis, you could be, you could cause an asymptomatic spread inside of a community really fast, and then it wouldn't be worth it to open the school. What are you hearing from your members? Oh, they're angry. They're frustrated. Um, you know, the teachers of New York City uh, in March, it was the teachers. We had to get into a major fight with the mayor in order to close the schools down. Then we had 73 of our school-based members uh, passed away from COVID, which is the largest number percentage-wise or a straight number than any school district. Um, yeah. And then with no plan or nothing in place or no support, they had to switch the entire school system to remote. And we had one of the highest daily attendances of any school system. It, it could have been better. We knew that. But there was no plan in place. So they're to the point where there's a complete break in trust with the city hall and the mayor. Um, and every step of the way, it's like we're the ones taking care of our students and our communities. And we're fighting with the people who are supposed to be doing that, which are the elected officials. So they're quite angry and frustrated and fearful, and they want to make sure that things are going to be done right, unless they don't want to go back. New York City is the largest school system in the nation, with just over one million students. The union represents 200,000 public school teachers and staff. We wanted to know if the sheer size of the system comes into play in those plans for the fall. How does that complicate developing a plan for a district this size and can that be overcome? Yeah, well, it, yes, because what you do have is a very large 
Department of Education, where if these, if you say this is a list of everything that has to be in place, and then you need to tell us how you're customizing it to make it happen inside of your building, and then you have a group of people that go into every building and check everything and constantly monitor to do that. I know that the union is already preparing teams to go into every school before the first day uh, uh, that students or teachers would be in there just to check to see if the if the cleaning products are in place, if the PPE is there, if there's a wipe schedule that's been done, if there is an isolation room ready to go. And then the other one is we still don't even have a nurse in every school building, even though the mayor had in his plan that the nurses would be making medical determinations at the school site. So. Uh, that's what we as a union uh, are going to do. I, this should not be a problem for the Department of Ed to have the same thing in place. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about PPE, testing, tracing. We're not talking about learning. How effective can this blended model be? Or if kids are, are remote for a good portion of the year, are they going to learn anything? What will happen? What will happen is the blended model throughout the shutdown when the schools were in remote only, teachers uh, said if we could only have seen our students maybe once a week, it would have made it much more effective. Uh, so it, can, it actually will enhance the learning. But the re- remote itself will actually be better because what we learned from watching to the end of the school year, we had to learn a lot of things. Remember, teachers were not trained. Uh, and schools did not have plans in place to do this work. What we learned a lot is we have a, a whole bunch of different working groups at different grade levels, uh, at different um, different types of student populations that we work with. We've had working groups since uh, we shut down in March. So they have all come up with all of these phenomenal practices that work, what works best for what type of student, and we are now, you know, those are things that we're discussing and, and constantly rolling out. Every school now will does have what we call an educational platform where every class can be registered into it and then we can put the curriculum in there. That's what we're working on right now. We did not have that when we shut down in March. So it could be, and what we've learned about how to do more uh, live instruction uh, and what's the right time period for all of those different things in terms of you don't want to put a six-year-old in front of a screen for more than an hour. You might want to break it up to different uh, times during the day. But we've learned a lot about all these things, and that's that's the beautiful part of going through that experience. It's sad that we had to go through that experience to learn that, but that's what we now have at our disposal. You know, there are a lot of parents who say, listen, I've got to work. i got to get my kids into school. I can't work from home or I can't work from home and mm-hmm. help them on, on Zoom. What do you say to them about how they've fallen to this. I mean, the teachers protect themselves. The city wants to get a lot done. And it seems in some ways the parents are caught in the middle. Yeah. And we have parents. Who, I speak to a lot of parents in large groups. And I, that is a concern. Look, we went before the school system was shut down. It was the union working just with the Department of Ed who set up those uh, child care facilities. And we had over 3,000 teacher volunteers who were rotating into them and still are rotating into them till this day, making sure that uh, the children have a safe place to go. And, and they actually are teaching them, even though they're child care facilities. So we understand this uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, 
so the city, no matter what, is going to have to continue, which is why we've been having a fight with the city that we said you have, even if we're opening our schools, which became clear to us in April that the, you could not bring every child back every day. So we, we contacted City Hall. We said, look, you're going to have a child care crisis no matter what, because even if we get the schools open safely, we can't bring all the children in every day. And they would be like, well, we have not yet made that determination. We're like, it's called math. And we just don't have enough classrooms and enough teachers to do it safely in person. So we've been asking, uh, we've been pushing at them, and now we've been working with a group of parents on a to push the issue. Like we need, you also have to have childcare set up. We have a lot of community-based organizations who do this work, who have uh, had great loss. If we could just find them the space, we could actually get them to set up an apparatus. But. It's such a difficult position that that we are all in because of this virus, but it has been made, it has been exacerbated by some of the lack of urgency on behalf of the city. Uh, And that's what bothers me more than anything else. I mean, people here love to point at the federal government, but we've also had some issues here. And by and large, I think most people are just continuing to lose more and more faith in government. And then there are concerns about the health of teachers, especially those who might be older and compromised. One of the things I want to ask you about, you have some teachers who are older and therefore more vulnerable. What happens with those teachers and if they don't go into the classroom? Do you have enough bodies to, to allow students to come in when appropriate? No, we, we, uh, th- those teachers... Uh... Right now, we're in the process of uh, processing, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, medical accommodations as people are allowed to take under federal law. Uh, And the Department of Ed worked out a a quick process so that we can do this uh, and not put people in harm's way, especially those who would be the most at risk. Even if we had all of those teachers here, we still would not have enough teachers for live instruction. Because the mass is this. Average class size is close to 30. You can't have more than 10 or 12, depending on the size of the room. So now you would need two and a half or sometimes three teachers for every class that you had before with one teacher. So the math itself just does not, is, it just tells you clearly that we are already short teachers, which is why it is so important that we get, that, that this federal stimulus package uh, gets done because without that, the Department of Ed itself can't even do can't even keep up, and the city can't keep up with the the demands we're going to need for all of the different supplies and to enact all of the different protocols that are on in that plan that we've already seen. And that's besides the the testing and tracing. That's just buying all the PPE, keeping the cleaning fluids, having the ionized sprayers in every building that we know kills uh, the virus on contact with it. Um, There's no way for the city to keep up with that with the current budget for the school system. So we're short-staffed and we're gonna be short um, uh, supplies and funding very quickly. If we, that's why that federal stimulus package is so important. If the city can't get done the things you're talking about, do you foresee you telling teacher, don't go into the classroom? I've been very clear with uh, all of the teachers of, uh, of this city that if it is not safe, if I do not believe it is safe, I will tell them that I do not believe uh, they should be going into schools. At what point do you expect you would make that decision? I'll make it closer to, as we get closer to the opening of school, 
Uh, I'm going to watch very carefully. We're all going to watch very carefully. Uh, there's a whole slate of school districts in different states that are supposed to open up on August 15th. Um, that's very, you know, we're going to look at all of those school systems and see who's doing what. And hopefully there are some that are successful, but I have my doubts right now knowing the states where they're, uh, they're looking to open. Um, it's just there's a major challenge in front of us, and I wish we would have, I wish uh, the City Hall would have listened in April when we said we need to start now, give us a working group. Um, but this last, uh, basically, we're a little bit, you know, four, four and a half weeks away from opening right now. And it's, it's, it's looking uh, extremely uh, difficult, to say the least. Michael, I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to add that we need to talk about? No, I just, uh, you know, I hope everyone out there just, uh, I know these are really stressful times for parents and for teachers and there's some, you know, and we've all been put in situations where some uh, really difficult decisions are going to have to be made. But hopefully if we can get more cooperation, we can get to a place where we can lower the number of difficult decisions that are going to have to be made. But it's just tough out there right now. Um, No national plan. That's not helpful. Very little coordination, and the fact that we see all these other states are just starting to uh, get more, get in worse and worse shape, it's not helpful at all. And uh, I just wish everyone the best. Across the river in New Jersey, They are wrestling with the same issues, keeping kids safe, keeping teachers safe, and making sure the students get a proper education, however it plays out this year. Wayne Yankis has spent the past four decades as a family pediatrician in Bergen County. He's also been the medical advisor to schools in Ridgewood, New Jersey for 36 years and added Leonia six years ago. Dr. Yankis also served for a time within the American Academy of Pediatrics as head of the New Jersey State Chapter. With so much information to digest about this pandemic, we wanted to hear from him about what information he's relying on to do his job. The advice that I've been giving is largely following the guidelines that the Center for Disease Control have put out, which of course have changed over time, but coupled with the guidelines from the New Jersey Department of Health Uh, and coupled also with what is fairly recent uh, guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics affecting the health of children, trying to interpret to schools and to educators and administrators how those are best carried out in a school system with children that range from preschool age uh, all the way up to obviously 18 years old and high school seniors. So I've been using guidelines largely, and my job has largely been to interpret those and the changes that have been made and serve as a a wall to bounce off ideas that administrators have. Uh, uh, An example we had today in one of our calls was how to handle books in primary school, uh, library books. Uh, Do you have a library? But yet first graders don't do online books very well. Fifth graders do. So how do you handle uh, reading lessons and reading materials for children that are in grades kindergarten one and two? Uh, Those are the kinds of things that we talk about. Is there a danger in handling books? 
Uh, how do you quarantine the books after you've used them? Should teachers hand out the books with gloves on? How does that work? Those are the kinds of questions that physician advisors to schools are getting at this point, as well as what to do with a child that has a runny nose. Do we suspect COVID in everybody? What about the fact that they're kids with allergies? What happens with the kid whose nose starts to run in October and doesn't stop running until April? Um, so the questions we're getting as medical advisors is largely how to make this work uh, within reason and how to continue to do your professional work that you've always done, uh, given the fact that this year we have to be willing to change on a dime. So I'm curious about the answer to the handling of the books. What is the answer for that? Well, again, we're learning uh, as to whether the virus adheres to surfaces or not. There were a lot of early studies back in January and February and, and March. We know that probably from respiratory droplets landing on these, from coughs and sneezes and people touching their faces, that, in fact, these can be vehicles for transferring virus. So, in fact, what we recommend for small kids is that if you have books or a small in-class library, that the teacher is the one that hands out the books, that the children just don't wander through the, the, the pile themselves. Most libraries and schools will be closed, but for elementary school students, particularly primary, where online reading doesn't always work, um, you have to have access to some books that either the teacher reads to the class and no one else but the teacher handles, or you give out the books, gloved hands, to a student who takes it home, and when they come back, you do what most libraries are doing, and that is quarantine the books for a period of time before they go back on the shelves. Dr. Yankish spoke to our Peter Haskell about how important the metrics are that we hear about every day in our communities. How much does he rely on that information? Well, quite a lot, actually. I mean, the the testing results within a community will say a lot about whether schools should open or not or whether they should continue. We recognize testing is a double-edged sword. That is to say, in some cases, the testing is readily available. In some cases, it's not. If you have to wait 10 days for your test, it's essentially useless. Um, but within the framework of tracing, contact tracing, which is an historic way of handling any epidemic or pandemic, uh, we count on that, but good contact tracing counts on the fact that you have reasonably reliable and quick testing available. Uh, so again, within schools, uh, we're going to find that the public health authorities in town, uh, the various districts, are going to be key in telling us uh, how to proceed. Uh, some areas have very good full-time public health people available, and some towns have only part-time public health people available who are struggling to get the contact tracing done that they need to get done. So in the interest of healthy kids and healthy schools, we certainly want to do our best to cooperate. And frankly, many of our school nurses spent the summer as contact tracers. Uh, so they're, they're skilled in being able to work with public health people uh, within the cohort of the schools that they serve. Now, remembering that not every school has a nurse, but in New Jersey, we're fortunate that most do. Uh, that is not true for the rest of the country.
Assuming that the positive test rates are low enough for schools to open, it seems inevitable that some or perhaps many schools are going to get positive tests. Do schools necessarily have to close? And what do you tell your districts? Well, what we've told the districts is the guidelines as they exist today, and they could well change again, is that if you you don't necessarily have to close a school for one positive test in faculty or student, but if you're starting to get more than one, the question is you're either going to close that cohort, that grade, that pod, not necessarily the building, but when you start to get a certain number of uh, positive tests, you will close the building. Now, the good news, unlike when we had outbreaks in years past of H1N1 or whooping cough or polio back in the late 40s, early 50s is, we have an online learning option. So if you've closed the fourth grade in a school for a period of a week or two weeks, those students can be online learning, so they are still counted presence. So you're not going to have schools that will have to have Saturday classes or go into July because there is an online alternative if you're quarantining or closing or isolating a particular class or a particular building. I think this gets back to the nimble factor again, where schools were used to closing down, as we did in March, an entire system. That won't happen now. You'll close just where the disease outbreak is and put those kids on virtual learning. Um, that, again, is to be tried. We've not yet had that experience because, unlike the South, we don't go back to school until September. What are the uh, downsides of online learning? I suspect kids are not learning as much virtually. and it, Is that going to be a problem going forward in years ahead? Well, we weigh it a couple ways. We've learned that uh, online learning for middle school and high school has worked reasonably well. And interestingly enough, it's worked reasonably well for high schoolers because they get to sleep later and the adolescent brain does better with more sleep. Uh, elementary school, particularly primary grades, K-1, 2, 1 and 2, uh, are the ones that have suffered the most with online learning because their attention spans are shorter. They're used to learning in groups. Um, and our special needs kids, those with attention issues, those with learning disabilities, those with varying degrees on the autism spectrum, where one-on-one -on -one learning is very critical, they're the ones that have suffered the most. And I think most school systems have done their very best in reopening exercises to try to place them in school as much daily as possible because of the loss of learning that they've had. But yes, we recognize that online learning is fraught with parents having to help upload, parents having to intercede sometimes if the technical factors fail, and particularly for those kids that don't have good uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, that's been a big issue for some systems is you can give a child a Chromebook, but if there's no Wi-Fi in the building where they live, it doesn't help. So you've had to accommodate that. Down the road, will we find that online learning isn't as good as classroom learning? I think we already know that. Uh, but it is what we are able to do in the midst of a pandemic to not endanger a significant portion of faculty who are older and have risk factors that being in in-person in teaching with students could place them at risk. Again, it's a question of what are the risks you're willing to take.
Wayne Yankis retired from a family practice after 38 years as a pediatrician, so his concern for young people is obvious. But Dr. Yankis was actually a history teacher before he even went to medical school, and his concern for teachers is also very real. What did this do about older teachers or those who might have compromised immune systems? They're given the opportunity to teach virtually if they can. Uh, they're also uh, given the opportunity to uh, come forward and, and discuss with their administrators what might be a reasonable teaching plan for them. I think that's what's going on now in July and August with most school systems. Uh, it's not only the teachers themselves that might have mitigating factors, but it's also if they live with somebody who does. Uh, if your partner has just recovered from breast cancer but you're healthy, you still are a risk to that person by virtue of living with them. So these are the cases that are being handled. And you also have child care issues. For a lot of teachers, there are huge issues. You may be healthy and well, but you may be forced to take a family leave, uh, which then reduces your pay and reduces your teaching obligations. So um, the older faculty, uh, you know, the French teacher who has asthma or who got over leukemia five years ago but still is being followed carefully, uh, people with all sorts of issues, uh, people with arthritis, people with respiratory illnesses, uh, they're probably not safe to teach at school, but there is an option for them uh, to teach virtually, and that's what's being explored. There's probably 20% of most everybody's faculty is in that category. It seems like such a confusing time. You've got new science coming out every day, and you've got all these data points, and then you've got parents who want to get their kids in school. They want them in school. Maybe they need them in school. How do, how do we weed through this and weigh all of these sometimes competing bits of information? Well, you're, it's a great question, and I think our administrators and faculty are trying very hard to, as you say, weed through it. I think in the end run, a school is made up of students and faculty whose job is to learn, and the faculty's job is to teach. The object is to not make anyone sick for doing their job uh, and not make any student ill for showing up. So while we know this disease tends to affect older people more than children, it would appear that children are the safest part of the school at the moment, regardless of the studies that talk about how students may carry the disease or be transmitters. Right now, the faculty are the people who are most likely to suffer disease and potential fatality. Therefore, we make our best effort to exclude or provide opportunities that are reasonable for faculty for whom there would be a risk to teach and at the same time promote as much in-person learning as we can for students to be in school. And I know the Academy of Pediatrics nationally had put that forward to say that we recognize that schools provide more than just academics. I mean, there's a whole lot of personal and social learning that come out of schools. And kids are relatively adaptable. It's amazing uh, how adaptable they can be. Uh, faculty will be the ones that have the hardest time adapting to new ways of teaching like this. Uh, but I'm not worried particularly about students. I think our experience has always been, you know, they will rise to the challenge. 
Based on the things that you just described with kids being in school and socialization, what do you say to parents who say, geez, I want my kid in school. They need to be in school. They need to be with other kids. They need to be learning. But I'm scared. Well, uh, again, uh, I think that's a discussion with the medical home of the child. That is to say, if you're scared about sending your otherwise healthy child back to school, it's a decision and a concern that you have that you might want to discuss with the person who knows that child's health history best, which would be their family doctor, pediatrician, or their medical home. It's a great discussion that pediatricians are perfectly capable of having with families to talk about their fears or concerns about sending children back to potentially an infectious place, but otherwise potentially uh, a very safe place. But that's a discussion that people should have outside of the school with their medical home before they make a decision to keep the child out or send the child back and be, you know, uncomfortable about the decision. Doctor, thanks for your time. There's something uh, we should have talked about that we didn't. Well, I think one of the things we also didn't talk about that is, is an issue, and that is for a lot of kids, school is where they get food. Uh, meal plans, federal meal plans and the like. It's our, our administrators and have bent over backwards to provide and make sure that safe food is available to kids. The other is that for a lot of children, school is a safe place and home may not always be a safe place. And so remanding kids home as opposed to being in a building where they feel comfortable, um, you know, that, that kind of thing is going to be, uh, going to be important. Those are two areas of school that we don't think of a lot for some of our systems, but uh, there's no system that doesn't have a child that isn't safe in school, is safe in school, and there's no system where there is a child that counts on that for food. Uh, those are two very important parts of what school supplies to children beyond learning. It sounds like districts really sometimes are facing, I don't want to say competing interests, but for lack of a better term, you might have teachers who have one idea and parents who have another idea about what's right and what's appropriate. Correct. Correct. Uh, and, and then again, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, they've, that's been historic uh, with parents in schools uh, as to what's appropriate. But again, we are being guided in the pandemic by public health law as well as educational statute. And we're doing our best uh, as medical advisors to make sure there is the appropriate balance between health and safety for kids and faculty working in an institution. No different than somebody working in a, in a, in a building uh, that is unrelated to school. There has to be a balance of what is reasonable to accomplish the work that you do. Dr. Yankis, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Peter Haskell with Dr. Wayne Yankis, who, by the way, was our family pediatrician, and you wouldn't find a better one on the planet. This topic will make news in the days and weeks to come, so stick with us on this. Will in-classroom learning, even in socially distanced environments, work? Will it hold up in areas of the country like New York and New Jersey, where the COVID numbers are looking good today, but everyone is concerned with a surge? 
As both our 880 in-depth guests this week suggest, any reopening plan will not work without a smart and well-thought-out plan to shut down cohorts, classes, and schools where positive cases appear. And like the rest of society, it's only as good as the testing and tracing programs put in place. As they say in our business, stay tuned. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. The executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself. Marta Zelinska provides our digital support, including help with the articles and social media for WCBS880.com. Subscribe to this as a weekly podcast and you'll never miss an episode. And most of them actually hold up for listening for weeks or even months. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, as we like to say. Just search for 880 In-Depth and please be safe. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 